And so Nehemiah, so let's talk again about just a brief history of where we've been, the nation of Israel. I always forget exactly the number. What, what is it? About three, four, about 400 years after they, they, they were established as a kingdom. So they came out of Israel. They wandered, I mean, they, rather, they came out of Egypt, um, the land of slavery, and they walked through the wilderness for 40 years. They came into um, the land, the promised land, where God had promised Moses, or rather Abraham, that they would um, have one day, uh, but uh, said it was going to be about 450 years before they occupied. They occupied under Joshua, but then there was a 400-year uh, history under the, uh, in the period of the judges in which it was just always up and down. They were really rebellious for 400 years, but then the kingdom was established with a king, King Saul first who was a king who the people chose. He looked like the kings of other nations. He was more tall, more handsome, more charismatic than, than anyone else. Um, and uh, the, the Lord said, okay, I'll give you a king, um, the kind of king that you want. And he gave them Saul. And uh, Saul just oppressed the people, but then... Um, the kingdom was torn away from him because of his sin. Then King David came in. And that was the beginning of the messianic line. Jesus is the son of David. So um, through his seed, the nation of Israel would be established. Rather, the, the messianic reign was established. And for about 400 uh, years, um, there was a series of kings, but things progressively got worse and worse, although there were kings, revivals came, but each low was a lower low. So the last bad, the last uh, really, really, truly bad king was Manasseh, reigned for 50 years, was just unbelievably evil. It says that he um, filled Jerusalem from one end to the other with innocent blood. He reigned for 50 years, and although there was a good king after him and some other kings that were not so good, at that point, um, the Bible says that the Lord had just decided, okay, enough is enough. I am going to uh, do what I promised I would do, that if there was repeated rebellion, I would send them far away, far away from their land, which happened under the Babylonians. So they were um, under the Babylonians for, uh, which was modern-day Iraq, 900 miles away from uh, from Israel, and they were there for 70 years. And in the book of Ezra, which we're coming out of, uh, we uh, uh, finished the book of um, Ezra. Uh, they first came uh, in the year 538 B.C. A man by the name of Zerubbabel uh, came, and uh, the King Cyrus at the time of, of the Medes and Persians had ordered uh, go back and uh, rebuild the temple of Jerusalem and remember to pray for me. Uh, and so uh, they did, after 70 years, just as the prophet Jeremiah had 
prophesied about 70 years before. Um, after 70 years of being in Babylon, they came back. Uh, they eventually built a temple. Uh, then we saw Ezra coming in uh, about 80 years after that and really bringing in the ministry of the Word of God. Uh, and then 14 years later, Nehemiah. And he's going to come back and he's going to rebuild the walls. We'll talk more about that. But, uh, you know, at that time, you having a temple without walls around the city presented huge problems um, because of just foreign enemies who hate God attacking and menacing. And, uh, and so Nehemiah is a book that is in my opinion, unrivaled in terms of explaining how the devil attacks you. It is incredible. Every kind of way he attacks you is in this book. And he will attack you if you are walking in the call of God. He will certainly attack you. Nehemiah is a book about how to begin how to persevere, and how to finish. It breaks my heart as a pastor to see people begin, and then they basically they, they fall off along the way, and they don't finish. The Lord doesn't want that happening to you, and for that reason, he gives us this book, the book of Nehemiah, among many other books, to instruct us Things looked really, really bad along the way, as it is in our Christian life. Sometimes we go through seasons where things look, this looks really, really bad, and there's no way out. There's no way through this. There is. Why? Because God is bigger. God is greater. And that's what we're going to see uh, in the book of Nehemiah. So it says... Verse 1, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. It came to pass in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Shushan, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brethren, came with men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down, and its gates are burned with fire. And so it was when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And so, verse 1 says, it came to pass in the month of Chislev, that's November or December, He's in Shushan, which is uh, a city of, in modern-day Iraq. It's a different city than Babylon, but it's, it's, it's still in that same general vicinity, which is in Iraq. Uh, it's the winter palace of the emperor. It's 900 miles away from Jerusalem. Again, there had been 
50,000 Jews had showed up under Zerubbabel, under Ezra, what was it, 5,000 others? So the, the, the Jews had settled in the region. And this man named Hanani, who was actually Nehemiah's brother, his biological brother, uh, comes back from that area and he says, things are not good. Says the, the people are in distress there. The people are, um, are in great dis- distress and reproach, meaning they're living in such a way that is not glorifying God. And I think we're going to find out later um, some of the reasons why. But it says, when I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. You know, every once in a while I have someone boast to me that they don't weep. Uh, seriously, they do. With all, in all seriousness. I'm talking about Christians. I mean, if an, an, an unbeliever said that, it wouldn't mean, mean anything. But I'll have a Christian thought, no, I never cry. It's one thing I never do. And, and I'm like thinking to myself, or sometimes I say it, that's not something you should boast about. <laughs> that's not something you should boast about um, at all. Here he is weeping. The Bible says, the book of Jeremiah, I, was, I think I was in this this morning, just this morning, yes. It says, Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. And so Jeremiah wept. Why? Because he had the Spirit of God in him. And he saw the people of God who were in great sin. And he knew where the sin was going to lead them. You know, one of the... I'm I'm always moved every Sunday by what the Lord gives me to preach on. And we've been in Galatians. And I tell you, I was as moved as I've been moved... Um, with preparing for any message is Galatians chapter 6 um, verse 1 where it said uh, it says in Galatians 6 1 you may remember that message it was maybe six weeks ago if a man is overtaken in any trespass you who are spiritual should restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness considering yourself lest you be tempted and we talked in that sermon just about Someone who had just having a heart for someone who sinned, recognizing that death is at work in their life because sin, book of James says, always produces death. Death in your relationship with men and women, death in your health, death in your uh, relationship with God. And just how we should pray for that for that spirit that agonizes when we see people in sin. And here he is weeping. His, his brothers, his brothers, the Jewish people, are in distress and reproach. They're, they're in reproach. They're in a low spiritual state. 
and they're in distress. He's also, um, so, uh, you know, if you don't, if you are unmoved when you see, uh, know of someone who has fallen into sin, don't be condemned, as I was talking about on Sunday morning, but cry out to God, Lord, this is not right. Please give me an agony for this brother, for this sister who is in sin. Lord, my heart is so hard. Why don't I care? This is a picture of a man of God. And, and, and if you think you're tough because you don't sin, because you don't um, weep, you are grossly deceived. This guy, Nehemiah, is tough as nails, right? Any of you guys who know Nehemiah, this guy is as, he starts ripping people's beards out at the end of this book. I mean, this guy is a serious dude. But he's weeping, why? Because the spirit of the God is upon him. And he doesn't like the fact, he's agonizing over the fact that his, his, the Jews are um, in, a, in a place of reproach, meaning they're in a place of shame. And, and, uh, and, and some of it is because of their sin. And how often that I pray for myself and our church that me and us, you in this room and our church would agonize over the city of Boston. Just here recently, just... Lord, please give us our, a role in restoring fathers to their children because the city is a mess because of fatherless children. And just agonizing for that or whatever other reason for our city. And so he's, he's and, and, and b believe me, I haven't arrived there yet, but I, I pray almost every day. Lord, um, agonizo, it says that um, Epaphras, agonized in prayer for the people of Laodicea and how we should be agonizing. And if we don't pray, Lord, give me a spirit of prayer that mourns like this, that, that weeps like this. It says, um, now any of you who are familiar with David uh, knew he was like a weeping, crying mess on a regular basis. Uh, <laughs> and and that was a, uh, uh, that was a, a thing that... Um, with, uh, it's, it's, it was not a, a bad thing. It was a wonderful thing about him. He was a worshiper. Uh, Psalm 6, verse 6 says, I am weary with my groaning all night. I, have, uh, I make my bed swim. Now that's a lot of tears. When you're making your bed swim, wow, you're filling up your whole room with tears and your bed is swimming. I drench my couch with tears. My eyes waste away because of grief. It grows old because of all my enemies. And so... Um, of course, there's a, a time to stop weeping and, and take courage and, 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 and move on from your tears. But tears are a form of a prayer. They, they are prayer. A tear is a prayer. And he is uh, he's a guy who knows prayer. And we're about to read that. Um, but it, um, he, he, he's also uh, he's concerned for his people, but also um, for... Jerusalem, for the city of Jerusalem. Uh, it says there in Nehemiah chapter 1, uh, verse 3, 
Uh, this guy, Hananiah, said, the wall of Jerusalem is broken down, its gates are burned with fire. Of course, it had been like that for a long time. But that's, that's how the people were, were living. And it, it, it made temple worship very difficult for the walls to continue to be like that. In Psalm 137, verse 5, it says, David says, uh, may not be David, but um, the psalmist says, If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. If I do not remember you, let my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I do not exalt Jerusalem above my chief joy. And so the Lord had put that, has put that on the heart of the Jewish people for, for thousands of years because um, Jerusalem is just has a major role in, in, in God's uh, prophetic order. And it's going to continue to have a role in the future. It has a role right now. So the, so the Lord uh, has put that on the hearts of the Jewish people. It says, um, again in verse 4, So it was when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. It says, I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And we talked about fasting in the message about six or seven weeks ago. I took a, we had a Q&A at that time about what fasting was. I may do a workshop sometime on, on fasting, but fasting is just a way that we can deny our flesh, and every time we have a pang of hunger, we can say to the Lord, God, more than I want food right now, I want you to do, and just fill in the blank. That's why we fast. And fasting, I believe, should be a part of every Christian's life. And if you're pregnant or if there are um, health reasons, obviously it's not a law, but um, it is something throughout the Bible that's used for people who to seek the Lord. And so verse 5 through 11, a prayer. And just, that we, just like we, I said in, the, um, in Ezra, when Ezra has that wonderful prayer, whenever you see a prayer by a man or woman of God, you should study it. You should take notes. You should meditate upon it because God wants you to be a man and a woman of prayer. He, um, the reason we pray the first Tuesday every night is just a profound conviction that I developed that, man, we're having Bible study after Bible study after Bible study after Bible study after Bible study, and, and, the, and, 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 and we're not praying. Where, when we know from the Bible that the purpose of Bible study is to get to know God so we can talk to Him and pray to Him and worship Him. And so um, study prayer, study this one. It says, it says, I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven, and I said, I pray, Lord God of heaven, you... Rather, I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments, please let your ear be attentive and your eyes open. So 
Um, let's study this prayer for a while. I strongly recommend that you don't just start your time of prayer with your prayer list for this thing and that thing and this person and that person. Start it with talking right to God, remembering how great He is, remembering how faithful He is, remembering how bigger, big he, bigger He is than all your problems. Remember, it just it says, um, I pray, Lord God of heaven. I mean, even that, just remembering, He's in heaven and He's in control. We need to remember that every hour of every day. What did Jesus say when He was asked, by the disciples, teach us how to pray. He said, our Father who art in heaven. There's that sense of he's in heaven. He's in control. He's reigning on the throne. And it's so important that we remember that. This book of prayer that I'm, that I'm now saying is the, the most important book outside the Bible for everyone to read. It's Power Through Prayer by E.M. Bounds. Um, poder a través, a través de oración, right? Um, my favorite quote in the book is by Robert Murray McShane, who says, above all things, cultivate your spirit. Which sounds selfish, but it's not. Because when your spirit is cultivated, what he means by that is you've got to get yourself alone with God and cultivate your spirit so you can be a good intercessor. And one of the ways to cultivate your spirit is just remembering how great God is, how great you are, Lord. I was praying as I was walking over here today, just realizing I'm so thankful, Lord, that you're so awesome and faithful that you give me messages to teach. I could just as easily blank out. You know, and, and, and just remembering the greatness of God, and there's so many reasons to be grateful. It says, oh, great and awesome God. And it, it's just so important, by the way, to keep track of the great things that God has done in your life, to write them down. I was talking recently with someone who's, really struggling with their faith and um, they were sharing with me they they did not write down the the, the great things that that God has done it's it's I tell you it's it's important sometimes to just go back and read or or remember those great things that the Lord has done in your life and he said so he begins he's cultivating his spirit who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you and just remembering his faithfulness in your life remembering those 7,642 times that you were certain that all was lost, but God came in yet again and blessed you and saved you and, and, and rescued you and provided for you. Uh, he says, Lord, I pray, uh, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant and mercy. You know, I think about the word mercy all the time. 
And I, I know that I've said this a number of times recently, but God not only, in Micah 7, 7, it says that God not only is merciful, he loves mercy. He loves to give mercy. It's not like, oh, okay, I gotta, I gotta give mercy. I gotta forgive again. No, he loves, he loves to give mercy. And he loves to give mercy to you, no matter how many times you fail. He's a God of mercy. You who keep your covenants with mercy, with those who love you and observe your commandments. I mean, if you're not walking with God, uh, you're kind of on your own. You're going to get smushed. You're out, in, in many ways, you're, not, you're outside his protection. I'm not talking about all his protection. The Bible says that when we're faithless, he's faithful because he can't deny himself. But you're in dangerous territory. I think Psalm 27 said, Lord, keep me in a, keep me in a, in a straight path because of my enemies. I mean, if you walk off the path and you're not observing the commandments of the Lord, if you're not walking in, in God's light, you're going to get smushed by the devil. And that's what it says. It says, O great, who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your uh, commandments, please let your ear be attentive and your eyes open. Of course, we know that God's ear is attentive and his eyes are open, but we need to remind ourselves of that. Please, God, listen to this prayer. I'm in agony now. I'm like, Nehemiah is saying, I, I am so distressed. Please, please listen to my prayer. Nothing wrong with that. This is, I say it all the time. A psalm a day keeps the devil away. You will, hear, you, you will hear David continually. Lord, please, please listen to me. Is God listening to him? Of course, but we need to cry out to God. Say, God, please, please listen to me. Listen to me, O oh God. that you may hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you now, day and night for the children of Israel. I'm reading with some guys tonight a, a book by Dallas Willard, and he's just speaking on the Sermon of the Mount and how it's been misinterpreted in so many ways and, and how it's been turned into a series of laws. And one of the things that's turned into law is, is different things Jesus says about prayer and um, one of the things he says about prayer is don't be repetitive like the pagans in your prayer life which is generally true right and I just grew up hearing stories of for, for, from my mother that with the nuns they used to tell her if she, um, she if they messed up and she was taught by nuns, if you messed up, you had to say the Hail Mary, I don't know how, how many times. That's a violation of what Jesus is saying. But we shouldn't turn it into a law, like never, ever repeat a prayer. And by the way, this goes on. You can go to the internet and find these preachers who say, if you pray for something more than once, you don't have faith. Nonsense. Now, I get what they're saying. I get the concept. There's a little truth in that. But here we see Nehemiah is praying day and night. He, it's, he, he, he's drawing closer to God by repeating this prayer, by going back to God, by praying it in many different forms. And listen, there's going to be many prayers. If you have a kid in rebellion, you're not going to just pray once. That's complete foolishness. 
You're going to be praying from every kind of angle you can think of. To, uh, and, and that's what he's doing here. He's saying, in praying day and night for the children of Israel, your servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which have sinned against you, both my father's house and I have sinned. So we saw this with Ezra. We see this with Daniel. A person who's a real man of God or a real woman of God is just going to be taking on the sins of the people around them and says, I've sinned, we've sinned. It's an intercessory prayer that's part of intercessory prayer. And that's what he's doing there. We're studying how to pray. There's hardly can express how important it is to pray. I just have to go off on a rabbit trail. I, I, I asked the, a professor of a, of a, who had been a professor for many years at a Bible college, um, a three-year curriculum they had. Do you, did you have even one course on prayer? No. I mean, that's just unthinkable to me. I mean, that's just pure madness. But if you go look at a seminary cu- curriculum as well, and, and, and wait, you're not teaching people how to pray? You've got to be kidding me. With the priority prayer has. I mean, you could go through the prayers of the Bible, and, 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 but, but, but I also think praying by example too. I'm asking my, the, the leaders of the church d- during the prayer times to start showing people just what it's like to get on your knees. It's not a law. It's a pretty big deal when someone's never gotten on their knees. It's a freeing thing. You can also pray standing up. It doesn't really matter ultimately, but sometimes being prostrate is an important thing. And and the idea here is he's doing stuff like that. Nehemiah is. Verse 7, we have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. And he's just, his, his, his heart is agonizing. I just heard a couple nights ago, I was hearing about a church split. Every time I hear about a church split, it just brings agony into my heart. It's just the most awful thing. What happens when the body of Christ is split in part? Just the, just the body. It says that we're bone of his bones, we're flesh of his flesh, and when you rip part of the flesh away, it's just it's an agonizing thing. But praying to the Lord that you're agonizing over different things in the body of Christ and for people's souls, and he's agonizing here. He's, we've, why? Because um, he realizes that Israel's been in so much sin. Verse eight. Remember, I pray the word that you that you commandment. That verse eight. Remember, I pray the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, "If you're unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations." And that's Deuteronomy twenty nine and Leviticus twenty six. Before the children of Israel ever got into Israel, he said, "He said, listen, I'm giving you this land." But if you're unfaithful, I'm going to scatter you. I'm going to take you away. 
and plant you in other lands. And that had happened. And Nehemiah is saying, okay, you did that. You promised it would happen. It did it. But you made another promise. And that's in the next verse, verse 9. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though some of you were cast to the farthest part of heaven, yet I will gather them from there and bring them to the place which I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. And so, Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 2 and 3. That's a promise there. So he's reminding God of his promise. He's reminding the Lord of his promise. And so when you pray, remind the Lord of his promises. Anyone want to shout out a promise that you can remind the Lord of in your, in your prayer life? What's that? He will not forsake you. I will never leave you or forsake you. Hebrews chapter 13. And that's also, of course, in Joshua and other places. What's another promise that you can pray and bank on? Philippians 1.6 said, He who began a good work in you will complete it. So no matter no matter how far you've fallen, you can remember he's going to complete that work. Psalm 138.8, by the way, says, I will complete that which, I will perfect that which I started in you. Same thing. Words to that effect. Anyone else want to state a promise that you should remind yourself when you're in prayer? What? Stephanie told me yesterday my hearing is going. Forgive us our sins because he is faithful and he's just to forgive us our sins. So when Jesus died on the cross for our sins, God made a judicial order that says that your sins are past, present, and future are forgiven. If he doesn't forgive your sins, he's unjust. So you can know that he's going to forgive you of your sins. In Galatians, we studied this, this verse. I didn't spend as much time on it as maybe I would have liked to. But in Galatians chapter 6, it says, do not grow weary while doing good, for in due season you shall reap if you do not lose heart. That's a promise. Romans chapter 6. Know this, that our old man was crucified with Jesus, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died has been freed from sin. That's a promise. Sin is no longer your slave. You've been freed from it. You don't have to remain in it. That is a promise of God. 
probably my favorite is, does anyone know my favorite? Does anyone have the gift of word of knowledge right now and know my favorite? Eldon, what's, what's my favorite promise to remember when I'm in prayer? You don't know? <laughs> okay. Uh, that's true. Romans 8.28. What? Are you kidding me? You'll see later, sometimes you have to be bold. Like when Nehemiah is talking to the king, he is bold. All th- God works all things together for good. That is such an important promise to remember in prayer to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. But very, very important. Like, okay, this is really bad and painful. But the Lord says, and he promises. And you can take it to the bank when he promises that he works all things for good. And I have no idea how this is going to be work for good, but it is. And so, by the way, another one that's related to that is Exodus 34, 6 through 8, where just Moses asked God, who are you? What's your name? And he says, I'm abounding in goodness. So you can just remember in prayer, okay, Lord, you say you're good, and that's a promise. And so I'm going to get up and I'm going to take joy in that. Because you said it. But here he is. Remember, we're studying prayer. That's what we're doing now. He's, he's reciting a promise. And um, he's, he, he's basically, you know, God doesn't need to be reminded of his promise, of course. But he's, he's telling the Lord, look, you said this, so please, please do it. So the promise, if you return to me and keep my commandments, which Nehemiah is doing, and do them, though some of you are cast to the farthest part of the heaven, yet I will gather them from there and bring them to the place which I have chosen as a dwelling place for my name. Verse 10, now these are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and your strong hand. So you've probably heard before the um, statement, Lord, you, you know, you got me this far. I know you're not just going to leave me here. That's similar to that, that prayer. Look, you've gotten us here through your great power. Continue, Lord. Verse 11, O oh Lord, I pray, please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name. And let your servant prosper this day, I pray, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. The man is his boss, the emperor. And then I just love the way this, this, this chapter ends. For I was the king's cupbearer. So 
chapter 2, and it came to pass in the month of Nisan, which is four months later, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, that I took the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had never been sad in his presence before. Therefore the king said to me, Who is, why is your face sad since you are not sick? This is nothing but sorrow of heart. So I became dreadfully afraid. And said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies waste and its gates are burned down with fire? And then the king said to me, well, What do you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven and I said to the king, If it pleases the king, if your servant has found favor in your sight, I ask that you send me to Judah meaning to Jerusalem, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. And then the king said to me, the queen was also sitting beside him, how long will your journey be? And when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I set him a time. Furthermore, I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me for the governors of the region beyond the river, that they must permit me to pass through till I come to Judah, in a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he must give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel which pertain to the temple, for the city wall, and for the house that I will occupy. And the king granted them to me according to the good hand of my God upon me. And so, I don't want to end quite yet our study in prayer. He's agonizing over this thing but it took four months for him to get an answer. And it's so important that when we pray that we're willing to wait. I'm sure you've probably in this room, I'm looking around at you, you've probably heard this many times, there's three answers to prayer. What are they? Number one, Yes. Number two? Number two? No. Someone has to answer other than my wife. Number three? Wait. Those are the three. And so it's important sometimes that we wait. I recommend the book all the time, Andrew Murray's Waiting on God. It was just a watershed book in my life as a brand new believer. That term, waiting on God, used throughout the Bible. Psalms 25, verse 3 says, No one who waits on the Lord will be put to shame. And one of the things that happens when you wait on God, 
is your faith becomes strengthened. It strengthens over time. And what Andrew Murray really does very, very well is he, 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 he talks about just the blessedness, the worship of waiting. Just after a while, you, you, you're, the Lord, when you wait, the Lord starts stirring up faith and stirring up worship. Like, yes, this is going to happen. And, you know, sometimes waiting involves years and years and years. We waited... 35 years before Stephanie's father really came to the Lord, um, a year or two before he died. Um, but others, other times, it's four months, and from time to time, uh, he answers immediately. He answers immediately, Lord, where are my keys? And then you look, and there's your keys right there. But if he answered immediately all the time, I think we would um, have very, very shallow uh, faith with the Lord. If he just answered immediately all the time, um, we would be like a kid who uh, every single time his parent he asks his parents something, immediately they give it to. Him. What kind of kids that? They're just they're going to be spoiled. They're not going to their character. There's going to be issues issues with their character. And he waits four months, and this was a guy who was agonizing. It says there, in verse 1, again, important, at the end of the last verse of the last chapter, I was the king's cupbearer. It says in the middle of verse 1, When wine was before him, meaning the king, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had never been sad in his presence before. And therefore the king said to me, Why is your face sad since you are not sick? This is nothing but sorrow of heart. So I was dreadfully afraid. So when you're the... It may sound strange, but Nehemiah was a very, very powerful man. He was a very high official. He was almost certainly a counselor of the king. He was his cup bearer, but he was almost certainly a counselor. He knew very confidential information. Uh, he probably was kind of, sort of like Daniel. The king trusted him because, you know, at that time there's all kinds of intrigue. You could be poisoned and killed by what you eat or drink. He trusted him. Um, but the one thing you don't want to be in front of the king is sad. And the reason for that is these guys were just tyrants, pagan tyrants. And the whole concept of public servant really didn't exist. It, it was... Yeah, one of the things I love about the Bible is just the uniqueness of Israel. It says in First Samuel that God knew, I mean, David knew that God exalted him because he loved for the sake of, his, his, for the, sake of the children of Israel. But a, but a pagan king was precisely the opposite. The whole kingdom existed for his sake. And uh, 
No one wants to have sad people in the presence. Does, do, do any of you like sad people in your presence? I mean, that's like a bummer. Um, whenever Stephanie is, <laughs> is the slightest sad, I'm like, okay, what's going on? Are you okay? What can I do? And um, you just don't do this to a king. That's why he says, I was terribly afraid, meaning he just, he wasn't able to keep, he wasn't able to fake it anymore. He had been probably faking it before now, but his sorrow was just overcoming him. And it says he was dreadfully afraid because these guys would just kill people like it meant nothing. Human life meant nothing. And you read some of these ancient accounts of, of kings and, uh, and, and the complete zero value uh, of human life. He became dreadfully afraid. And, and then it says in verse 3, and... Wait a second here. Oh, yeah. It says, so... In verse 3 it says, So I became dreadfully afraid and said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the sin, or rather, when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies waste and its gates are burned with fire? Then the king said to me, What do you request? And so I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, I ask that you send me to Judah, to the city of my fathers, that I may rebuild it. And I just love, I just love it where it says in verse 4, another study on prayer here. Then the, I, I, by the way, I think he prays 10 times in this book. This, this man of God, Nehemiah. It says, it says, then the king said to me, what are your requests? So I prayed to the God of heaven. It's just important for you to just ask God to make this a habit. You know, each day I try to make it over to Franklin Park to pray, and I go through like <laughs> some, uh, what you would call very inner city places to get there. It's part of the reason I really like my walk, because I really like walking through very inner city places, but I'm like, I like walk right into like crazy things on a regular basis. Um, you know, drug deals and people acting crazy, people approaching people, and and so uh, I just pray. I just on a regular basis, okay, Lord, you want to use me here? Use me here. Important to be developing this habit in your life. Just when you see a, a situation that's even slightly off, okay, Lord, uh, I need your help here. If you want to use me, use me, or whatever it is. I just love how he, he prayed here. Now, for four months he had been praying, and I'm sure he had in his mind what needed to be prayed about but um, rather what needed to be done. Uh, but, I, I, you know, I love, I just love the boldness. He is so bold with this emperor. He's not used to asking the emperor anything. But he's very bold with him. I do feel like, in a sense, this is a continued 
this is a continued study of prayer. You need to be bold with God from time to time. Very, very bold uh, with him. But you also need to be bold with people. You know, as, as a pastor, I have learned, I get into situations, I just need to go for it and call out the sin. And I get it. They may lop my head off, and sometimes they, they try to. Um, but being bold with people uh, is important. But when you're, when, when you're close to God in prayer, you will, you'll develop that boldness. But he's, he's very, very bold. It's just like, what is this guy telling the king? You know, what is it, what, uh, you know, what is it that you want? says, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in my sight, I ask that you send me to Judah and uh, to the city of my father's tomb that I may rebuild it. He's telling the king what to do. And it's just a very bold statement. And um, I, I, it's just, I, 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 I love how he does that here. He boldly asked the king, and in verse 6, it says, The king said to me, well, How long will your journey be, and when will you return? So it pleased the king. It doesn't say what his answer is, but it pleased the king to send me, and I set a time. So he actually suggested a time to the king, but then he went on, and he asks for letters to get permission to go there. Because remember, Israel doesn't own this land anymore. There's other governors there. There's other people in charge. And he says, please give me letters um, to be able to get through um, to Jerusalem. And also, by the way, King financed the whole thing. <laughs> in verse 8, he's, uh, he tell Asaph, the keeper of the timber, to give me... Uh, that, that, that the keeper of the king's forest, that he might give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel which pertain to the temple. And it says, the king granted them to me according to the good hand of my God upon me. So it was granted. So we'll pick up next time, next week, God willing, um, we, we will continue. There's an amazing prophecy in Daniel chapter 9 uh, about the exact date that Jesus Christ, Messiah, would come. That's based upon this verse. We can pick that up next time, verse 8.